This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. You've regularly heard me discuss the value of digital infrastructure, whether that's a data center, the data itself, or the telecom that connects it all. There is no modern economy without it. However, the linchpin of that industry is the people who build and operate it. And in my experience, the veteran community is almost purpose-built to work and thrive at the intersection of technology, teamwork, and tenacity. We've learned that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Or at least so says my guest, Kirk O'Fell. Kirk is the CEO of Overwatch Mission Critical. He's a data center industry expert, and he's a Navy vet. Kirk and I dive into the mindset and mission needed for the fifth industrial revolution, certainly for it to be successful, and where veterans bring in valuable skills and a shared sense of purpose to the table. Having a plan B may seem enticing, but it can undermine the strength and determination in our industry of constant change. So sit back, enjoy the conversation with my friend, Kirk O'Fell. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. So Kirk, thanks for coming on the show. You're here. Thanks for having me. Instead of accounting, we're going to do that. Um, there. When did we first meet? Do you remember? Yeah. Or one well, of the first times. I don't know if it's the first time. but So look, can I tell you the time that was the most meaningful? Sure, please. All right. So we've met before, back when you had short hair, right? <laughs> so I've known you. Um, and ironically enough, the first time that we really ever, we engaged a few times in advance. I was just kind of telling you what I was trying to do when you being a veteran. You're like, hey, I get it. Mm-hmm. I think that there's, we as veterans tend to be like, <clears throat> I love everything you're saying. Just let me see it. Right. You get it, and that's that's uh, that's the appropriate response. Anyways, we got to hold each other accountable. So I was like, "Look, I want to go do some amazing things in this space, mm-hmm. but in parallel to that, I want to make sure I'm equally serving the community that we come from." Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking. This was like two weeks before we were launching Overwatch, mm-hmm. and um, I was invited to go speak on a panel at DCD Dallas. And uh, this was still like 10 days before we were getting ready to launch, which was out at seven by 24 desert Ridge or whatever in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, that's when like the business was live, the website, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. So I was out there and you happened to be in the audience and you asked me the question. I think I've told you this before. The question that you asked me on that panel had a profound impact on what we do as a business in terms of the way that we engage our veteran community. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I was oblivious to, as silly as that sounds. So being former military, mm-hmm. I've hired more military people than I could count mm-hmm. coming out of the military through every military recruiting group you could, you could name. Right. And I've used them through every stage of my career when I had the ability to hire more people. And I was always in field service or something that had to do with operations in my hands. And I tend to fall back into military people who I know um, are really well-trained on advanced weapons and machines and technology that I know that their aptitude allows them to, transition well into our space. So I just hired a lot of military and um, as silly as it sounds, the question that you asked me was the biggest blind spot I had, which (laughs) you said, Kirk, what are you doing when you're focused on hiring all these military veterans and you're hiring those that are uh, coming away from active duty service and they're dealing with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm born and raised in the military. Every man in my lineage is military. And 
like PTSD is something that is very prevalent, but I've never really viewed it as something that was unique only to veterans. Mm -hmm. In fact, in my, in my learning, right. Um, the number one form of all of PTSD really comes from automobile accidents. So veterans don't have the highest level of PTSD, actually the civilian community, almost everybody statistically has an element of PTSD that could have occurred in their subconscious in the first seven years of their life or something that happened beyond that, right. That they have more, uh, upfront that they get to kind of deal with. And, and PTSD is just, it's a factor. So your question was like bomb on target with me. And I remember, um, kind of probably switching in my seat a few times trying to figure out what I'm going to say because I'm an idiot. But I said, you know what? The only thing I know what to do is, um, is I need to help them feel inspired by what they do every day. And I think if I can create an environment in which they feel safe, I mean, not from the threats and the dangers that come in building data centers, the magnitude that we build at, because it's a dangerous business. But I do think that if I can inspire them by what they're doing or make, allow them to be inspired by who they're doing it with, like from the team or the culture. And I made sure that they knew that they were safe. Like all the threats that exist to our business fall outside of our business. Now there's risk to my business that falls within it, but that's all fixable. That's, that's training and that's coaching and that's delegating and that's leadership and communication. But the thrill threats come from outside the business and I needed them to know that. So if you came here, you know, you should be inspired by something. You should feel uh, safe in what we're doing. And with that, you should be fulfilled by what you do. So every night you could go home proud of what you did. You did something that was of significance. So think about it. If you're a, a need nothing and you're driving submarines and then you come away and you're trying to talk to someone else about um, something along that magnitude and, and they, you know, some of your civilian counterparts can't relate to the excitement of launching F-14s or, you know, F-18s off a carrier deck or like that's real safety. I mean, that's real mission critical stuff, right. right? We call it mission critical, but those people are measuring what they did in the military. The mission critical aspect was how they measured their mortality, not downtime, right? So, so for me sitting there in all three seconds prepared to answer that question, which is, I was like, Oh, let me breathe. And that was the only organic answer I could think of was you have to let them feel safe and be inspired and be fulfilled. And if they can't do that, then you're going to have trouble with anybody that has PTSD, regardless of they're a veteran or not. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's really cool that you mentioned at the end there that we all have an element of this. It's, it's a, uh, I have children, uh, daughters that are, um, I've been married 36 years, but we didn't have kids for over a decade. And my wife's, um, dad was airborne infantry, world war II. He was 187th Rakasan Airborne in Korea. He was three tours of Nam. Didn't get the Medal of Honor, but Who Silver Star. My father-in-law. Okay. Multiple, multiple, multiple Purple Hearts, multiple Bronze Stars with clusters, Silver Star, just 30-year Black Hat Airborne Instructor. They don't make them like that anymore, it seems like. And I didn't know any of this other than he was a veteran until he passed. Mm. And they bought, brought it all out. Like, he just... Tumble. It was not, we don't talk about he's an uh, Irish books. guy from Boston. Uh, her mom is from Fukuoka, Japan. And so just really kind of pioneer stuff still dealt significantly with PTSD. They did it differently, but they had it um, at Kiwanis or Lions Club or the VFW or whatever. And there, most days were good days, but not all good days. And so, and then I'm sure that family dealing with a 
this combat veteran who's coming and going and coming and going. But it just, then my kids, just, you know, things in their life. Uh, my wife, I think, has it from an automobile accident that she had early in our marriage. And so it's, um, it's just made me more sensitive to the discussion, and especially as we see emerging medical, um, either uh, medication that used to be sort of taboo and hallucinogenics and stuff. I've never experimented with any of that stuff, but just to see the research and all these things that are going, the therapy they're helping, but veterans in particular have had a place in my heart. Um, I've never been, whatever PTSD I have was not because of my time in the service. It was harder and before and after that. But, um, but I, I know a lot of them and I know that lifestyle. And then I got invited um, a few years ago to, uh, Zach Brown's got a compound here in Georgia. Uh, and they work a lot with SEALs and other groups. And I got to go and speak down there. And as a result of that, I got to see what they're doing primarily with people with PTSD. And um, it is, uh, um, you know, as we try to navigate the world, and I think if your love is for veterans, it, this is a part of their world. And um, you, you point this out on a number of times about, uh, for I don't know what the statistics are now, but for a long period of time, we lost this many in a war, but we lost this many at home. And I, anyway, that, I'm sure that was the genesis of my question was, we just, how do we help net, um, this community of people that we love, that we have great affection for, but navigate things maybe that are beyond their ability to navigate? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, that's the that's the, the genesis of why I'm here, right? And when I, when I say why I'm here, I'm not just sitting with you. And I guess, like, let me pause. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. I don't feel worthy to be on this podcast. Everyone else that's been on this podcast. I mean, I, I think I was telling you, I'm like, there was a guy that was on this podcast like a month ago and I was reading something in the New York Times about him going and briefing the White House on something. So I'm like, I'm not... I'm not normally qualified to be in this chair compared to those types of people because half You're more my, than qualified half my lexicon you already told me i couldn't use anyway you're like listen this is a pg-13 <laughs> oh we just edited it out i'm gonna wonder why your lips keep moving and we Man, don't hear anything i'm sitting here like trying to figure out like what do you use in space of that word but i have a limited vocabulary i was born in the military so um i i think that everything that i do uh, I think that we all have a purpose. You have a purpose, you know, Absolutely. we all do. And everything I do is in service of that purpose. And, right. and, and I love the data center industry. It has had, um, I started when I came out of the military, this industry I stumbled into and this industry became my second career. Right. So like there are people coming out of the military that are institutionalized from uncle Sam for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to think about, going and, and, and discovering what you need to do next on your own. And it was regardless if you've been in for that long or even only just your one tour that you yeah. did like me, it's still daunting, right? To try to figure out what's that transition look like and what should I do? And the only advice I give people is like fail as much as you can and fail as forward as you can. Like I try not to give myself, um, I try not to contingency plan too much around my my ideas because I don't want to create a safety net in my mind that says, Hey, if this doesn't work, I have plan B because plan B typically allows me to be softer than I want to be and not, not commit in the way that I need to, to make plan A just work. Right. So I create an environment that removes the safeties that makes it more volatile. 
and much more kinetic for me to make sure that I'm moving and communicating effectively enough to draw everybody forward. So I'm bringing value to the industry while simultaneously bringing some sort of value to the veteran community. Right. And you can't always do that. Knowing the answers, you know, can't figure it out pencils out every time. You just kind of have to know you're moving in the right direction and get ready to fail forward. Yeah. Right. Um, although my only asterisk to that is, um, if you're not good at even under pressure, getting plan A to work, don't be a skydiver. Like it's probably <laughs> the first you don't succeed, probably don't jump out of things high up in the air. I love this phrase that you have, and it's resonated throughout a lot of your conversations, which is, um, I wrote it down here, overdoing it is underrated. Yeah. What so, do you mean by that? So, um, that's a very traditional military thing. So I was born, have you ever watched the great Santini growing up? Mm. Old school movie, Robert Duvall, uh, F4 pilot, I think Vietnam era type of thing. And, uh, my father was E1 to 05 in the air force, um, 24 years, turned 18 in Vietnam with bombs in air force. So he started, you know, with an enlisted, um, career and then finished, you know, with a bachelor's from Boise State, a master's from OU and right. thousands of hours in the cockpit of multiple platforms. And, and he was a really a big believer on how uncle Sam could teach you everything. So we, we, and me being the youngest of a bunch of boys, we would adopt into that philosophy from a young age, right? Where like the big joke in our house was like, Hey man, if you can't get an athletic scholarship or a, you know, an academic one, uncle, your uncle will pay for it. Yes. Uncle Sam, right. you know, and we all, I mean, we've all had our college pay for right. the GI bill. So my thing is, is I, um, being around that you're around a lot of tough people sometimes too. There's amazing people in the military and we're all broken. Mm -hmm. You know, um, everybody has blind spots. You, you, you show me the savage and I'll, I'll show you where they're broken, right. you know, where their blind spot is. And, and in that, I think the military offers a culture that is more tolerant and accepting of that. And it, and it has a left seat, right seat cockpit mentality. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. So in the indoctrination or the way that my, my mind has been conditioned from birth, um, was to adopt a default aggressive mindset, which is what the military is. The military is the deterrent for the nuclear war, right? And it exists not to go rage war, but so that those, those that know of us know that we are willing to there's a challenge you to find a more proficient and experienced and trained military force than ours even if there's one that's bigger than ours it's not going to have the training ours does nor is it as proficient as ours since we we are constantly in combat right so when you're around all those people you start adapting things that come from that and um one of the phrases that's most prevalent amongst the special forces or the soft communities or the seal communities mm -hmm. is uh anything that's worth doing is worth overdoing mm -hmm. because we rotate hard in the military like if one is great then 10 has got to be 10 times better right and we do what that do you mean when for people who don't know what does rotate hard mean that means um let's say you're gonna you have a critical idea and you have to uh you have to really execute and work. This industry, I think, is fantastic for what, I mean, there's a million reasons why this industry is phenomenal. The one that I think I discovered first and why I fell in love with it the most is because I discovered you don't have to have the most experience in this industry. You don't even have to be the smartest. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be the tallest. You don't have to do any, 
bravest, strongest, fastest. You just have to work the hardest. Right. And some people don't like to grind, right? And and working hard, like you said, is not a hundred hours a week. Some you know, sitting in front of your computer. Sometimes it's turning the music off when you're driving and forcing your brain to stay thought, you know, locked so that you're in those cycles. And when you pivot, sometimes what you're doing is you're losing your focus and we'll pivot hard into the things that make us um, more effective at executing on whatever that objective is. And for me, um, when I showed up to my submarine, even as an E4, I was like, well, what's the highest rank I could be? E9, check. I had all of my quals for E9 done for in the first six months of being on my ship. And it was, I didn't have to, I had plenty of time. You could make E5 and then go get the quals for E6 done, make E6, get the quals for E7. But I've always felt like, why wouldn't I just go get it all done now? Like, I'm not a procrastinator. I don't believe in band-aids. You know, I don't put, I don't believe in temporary fixes, right? Like we got to fix, we let's, let's just pause. Let's fix it. Like. Sometimes you have to slow down. Mm -hmm. It's like um, in my last board meeting, uh, I was not trading paint, but I, you know, I have people that share my passion and conviction. And one of them was challenging me on the concept of slowing down. I was like, if I had to race you from, I, we're in Austin, from here to Dallas, right. and you had a flat tire, you're telling me you wouldn't stop to change that tire because you can't afford to lose that time? Mm -hmm. Because I'm going to stop to change that tire. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to add 20 miles to my top end speed against you. And I'm going to beat you there by an hour. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. But some people don't have that because you were talking about that. You were talking about the ability to be pressure tested, responding under pressure. Like you're right. Not everybody's meant to jump out of airplanes, but I think those of us that have been in the military to some extent, we've all been pressure tested and they strip you all down. They do an exceptional job. In fact, of, of helping you remove most of the selfish tendencies you have to, to give you in return a selfless, you know, um, sheet of music to scene from that says this is what everybody else is doing and the chorus sings a lot louder than the soloist so you may want to buy in right. and and then you i tell you what you know what comes ahead of you the mission and then you know what's ahead of that is the command you come last and that's that's a that's a mentality that you get where when you do something you're going to do it as hard as you can not as minimum as you can I think that's the generation we live in right now is most people, if you tell them to do something, they're going to go do the minimum amount. Overdoing is underrated means I'm going to go do the maximum amount I can. I just don't compete against anybody but me, right? So I'm going to go see if I could beat that version of me from yesterday. Yeah. And that, look, that transcends into everything I do. What you do for anything is what you do for everything, right? Um, so in those things that you said there, so the, the, I'm going to bring a few things together in my brain disc golf, yeah. days of thunder, and command and control. I heard um, somebody give a, I can't remember who I would give them credit. Um, well, first there was a SEAL. I think he's the congressman in Houston with the eye patch, who's Dan. Dan Crenshaw. Yeah, I think it was him, but it might have been somebody else. I'm sure they would all say it, those that have successfully completed and deployed as a SEAL. Um, there is no plan B. If you find out what somebody's plan B is, they will not become a SEAL because there's just a mental, and they're not saying everybody's meant to be a SEAL, but those that go through it and then are deployed and are successful in their career. And I could say the same thing for SF, Force Recon, um, 
This is it. Rangers. Ranger, Ranger Bat. My buddy was down here this weekend harassing me. We met February 28th, 1984. Going through school, I went Pathfinder. He went Ranger Bat. And I'm, I give him a hard time. He's a little bit more athletic than me, but he's got a drop foot after seven or eight back surgeries and a few other things. And, uh, you know, you give a lot. <clears throat> he, he gave a lot. Not the ultimate sacrifice and not as much as some, but you just see these kind of old uh, veterans and uh, mess around. Really good, uh, really good dude. Um, but anyway, so that was one thing from the seal. The other thing was, um, the thing that makes the United States the greatest is we're not the most courageous, although we're courageous. There are plenty of, you know, Patton would said, let them die for their country. You know, you, yeah. you live for yours. So it's not about love of country or commitment or whatever, but probably the best that we do, maybe the Israelis are close, um, to this, but our command and control, our drilling our life, our training, those things. There are other armies that have as much technology, that have as much stuff. When you put this stuff together, to me, it's it's um, it's insurmountable. I, uh, I, th- I think going back, you know, the, the cultural mindset that it permeates throughout all branches of the military now, because you have so much cross-branching. I mean, my XO or my CEO of my company right now is a Navy SEAL. I mean, that guy has forgotten more about how to train and lead people than I'll ever know, right? right? Which is why I had to bring him on. I didn't bring him on because he's a SEAL. He happens to be one. But I know that the type of training that he has, you have to remember those people, they train to fight and they fight to win Mm -hmm. because it pays to be a winner, as they say, right? So they're going to do everything they can to focus. Like they're not going to waste a cycle on what what if like no no we're winning this fight right okay and we just need to adopt that i think that we create too much of a comfort zone for us to be like well if we don't you know we do our best and that that doesn't work my clients don't if i go to them and say i'm I'm sorry i missed your budget or i'm sorry i missed your schedule and you know that number one kpi you have on safety we only had one accident like that's not acceptable you get so and i think going back to the part you're talking about Training is something that you have to, um, no one likes to do it, but wow, does it make a difference to those that don't, right? I mean, like, what's the alternative to not doing it? Death, right? And are you dropping more loads, missing more budgets, missing more schedules, losing more clients? I mean, like, you just can't afford it, right? So I, I I do think there's a lot of ways in which it all fabrics together. It's all weaved together. Mid eighties, I was down at Benning and, uh, we had a, um, if I remember correctly, I might get, I don't know how to fact check it, but if I remember it was a colonel from, um, Russia, I don't remember what branch he was in, but somebody asked a question, we got a chance to do Q and A, he had defected and he said, um, you know, what's the number one deterrent back then it easily half my 11 Bravo, uh, buddies, uh, not airport, but it's just infantry. Did some time both in South Korea and in Germany, Western uh, Germany, and you know it was very real. Very kinetic um, right across this, right? And he said, you know, the number one deterrent is limited nuclear tip air force in the UK. But that aside, <clears throat> your army is so much better trained than ours. It's not just yeah. the size. We have sophisticated weaponry. We don't life fire train the way you guys life fire train over and over the morale of the West, the morale of the West Germans, the morale of these NATO people. And I'm not trying to comment on whether we should or should. That's 
it's less about what in his mind and in the, his leadership cadre's mind when they're honest and kind of away from the um, propaganda was you train life you know what the sound of rounds sound like you know what the sound of these things um, what it's like what bombs concussing on the battlefield like yeah. I remember being out at Fort Irwin and my first real live fire with jets coming in, dropping just five of just quote unquote, but 500 pound bombs, which are big bombs, but not big, big, big bombs. And I'm a forward observation uh, guy. And these things are hitting the ground and concussing. And if you weren't used to that yeah. or real army coming over your head and blowing up all not, and I wasn't in it. I was just around it. It, it's a different experience. And, and so by drilling and drilling and drilling and being exposed to those things, it's not that we became numb, but we, we, we were able to compartmentalize fear and inaction into this is what I do. Here's my muscle memory. And here's how I need to control my um, emotion around these consequences that are happening around me. I call it emotional range. And you even yeah. use your hands to try to display, you know, yeah. like, and you, even by your own admission, were like, look, I wasn't even right in the middle of it. I was in orbit of it, and I still felt it, and it had a profound impact on you. And I think that that's the same throughout everybody that's in the world. I was at a, we hosted a conference just recently in San Diego, first one we've ever done. And, and you know, I'm taking every question you can imagine, right? And people are like, okay, what rank does, you know, what, what rate or what branch of service? And I'm like, none of that matters. Because at the end of the day, the things that people really want you for, you don't really have any experience for, but you have the emotional range and the character obviously the military teaches you an aptitude which means that you have the ability to learn at an accelerated rate and you understand the hierarchy chain of command and you, you tend to understand how to i mean you're going to come in early stay late volunteer do the hard stuff you can pass a drug test typically you know right. the military has certain things that you can predict that it should be consistently and that should be the i mean it's the threshold in the military in which we it's the minimum standard of tolerance does that make sense this this the it's defined by what they tolerate. And those are the things that they won't tolerate below that because it, it leads to, I mean, that's why we don't have submarines sitting on the bottom of the ocean all over the place because right. the integrity is never compromised when it comes to that type of training, development, right. culture, right? Right. Can't be a no-go at this station. I, so I'm going to tie two other things. Days of Thunder, we were talking about racing. Um, one of my favorite, right next to Tom Cruise, 80s movies, right next to Cocktail, right there. Um, Great movie. <laughs> Both of them. Um, we, uh, um, my earliest recollection, recollect, recollection of Tom Cruise was Taps. Do you remember? Taps of course. With, that was when he was a kid. It's like one of his yeah, first movies. It yeah. was like a, it was like a Citadel or something like that. That's right. right. It was with Sean Penn and Timothy uh, Hutton. And yeah. Great movie. Yeah. But anyway, um, you know, where he's trying to convince him our goal is not to be hot lap or to knock that guy off the track. As fun as that could be, our goal is to win the race. It was Robert Duvall. And here's how we do it. You do it your way, and we'll see what the tires of the car look like, and then we'll do it my way. Oh, yeah. And, and so I sometimes in my career here have had to remind people, look, our goal is to win the race, right? If In the military, I remember uh, my leaders drilling into me. I have two things. One is mission accomplishment. We can't accomplish the mission. What are we here for? We've got to accomplish the mission. The other is troop welfare. These are my big boundaries, whether it's in the convention, from the code of military justice, these other things to help frame it up. But these two big ideas, mission accomplishment, troop welfare. 
And so days of thunder, I remember just kind of implying that, how do I adjust so that I can win the race, not just win the lap? The last thing we have a saying in disc golf, I recently took up for my relatives in Texas, this thing called disc golf. And um, I was out with some guys that are pretty experienced one day and I was trying to putt. So you throw this disc into the basket with the chains. And I was just hitting kind of the band at the bottom and dropping it, anything of any kind of distance, maybe 15 to 20 feet away. And this guy turned and looked at me and said, hey, how far would you say you're short of this basket? I said, probably seven or eight feet. Can you make a seven or eight foot putt? Yeah. So I had thrown from 20 feet away and I missed it. He said, you know, seven feet past it is the same as seven feet short. But if you're short, you never have a chance to get it in. So overdo it. Do it harder than you think. Give it more power. Give it more whatever. And he just wasn't trying to get me to be obtuse. But if you're going to end up seven feet away if you miss anyway, at least you gave yourself a shot. Be a little long yeah. instead of a little short. And it was such a silly, simple thing. Um, my putting is better. But, it, but I think as you're describing, it's like, look, if you're going to do it, Go all out. Go all out. And if you miss, it's better to miss in most, maybe not all, but most circumstances by a little more, but you give yourself a shot, then not enough, and you never have a shot. I think it all ties down to the mindset of whether you have an offensive mindset or a defensive mindset. If you have a defensive mindset in general, you're going to always fall short regardless of what you're doing because you're going to play it safe. Right. You'll lay up. And um, I think if you have a aggressive mindset, you're more likely to embrace failure. You look at failure for what it's defined for. It's to teach you. You don't learn from anything you do right. You only learn from the things you do wrong. So the more you fail, in theory, the more you learn. Those that don't like to own their failure ships are those that are most likely not growing or they're failing, you know, they're not learning. But I think that it's just a mindset. Like people don't realize that we are conditioned. I mean, a lot, I don't watch media at all anymore. And, and it's had a profound impact on my life because it's called programming for a reason. I mean, there's a lot of conditioning into your mind. That's if you watch it, just pay attention and see how much of the stuff that's being poured into your ear hole is just negative. And how does that bring you any value? But if you remove that, or if you even have the exercises down to where you understand how to stop a negative thought cycle, to start a positive one, then you just don't have those bad days, right? You just, you're not getting lost in that stuff. You're never going to fall short. You're just going to go maybe too far over. Yeah. And I'd rather rotate over, over rotate on those things than under rotate on it. Right. So that could be like a death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. You know? So I was looking at a number of the podcasts that you've done and you guys, how many have you published so far? Hmm. I don't know, man. I mean, like we're just getting started. Right. I mean, like your podcast has, you you dwarf what we've done in, in terms of who you had. I've had some great people on though. I'm not gonna lie. I really enjoyed. I have a lot of freedom and I, mine is not primarily about data centers. Data centers, probably 30% of what we talk about are related to it. I would say a lot of tech, a lot of tech, some philosophical. Yeah. I try to find that intersection of technology and helping human beings flourish. But I noticed something in, as I looked at yours, um, it was, uh, it was different than what I was going to expect in terms of this running theme. It's in my mind, it feels very philosophical. There's a lot of philosophical. There's some for sure here's speeds and feeds and how we're going to do this. 
and you guys talk about that, but you pivot a lot of times into conversations, so how should we feel about that? How, how do I use my brain to pivot in the midst of these other things? Do you think of yourself as a philosophical person, or did I come to the wrong conclusion there? I have all, I've got a bunch of titles here if you'd like to. So, I don't know. I, let me say this. Like when I, um, even the business that we have now, like if you look at it, people ask, what was the plan and the performer? I'm like, I just put a team together of people that I trust and love. And then based on their capabilities, limitations, we would define what the business would be around it. So imagine how we evolve every time I add another member that has a significant contribution to our leadership's range then the business changes the byproduct with that person, the dynamic that that person brings. And no different in the way that we got to DCAC, right? DCAC was really selfishly me being um, a closet nerd that wanted to know more. And I'd go to conferences and hear certain people, but uh, sometimes I didn't hear the people I wanted to hear from. So we created one and said, look, I'm going to put the people up there that I think are disruptive and are emerging. Maybe they don't have a platform yet, but they need one because they have a big idea or a big voice and we want to hear it. And, um, and then that just kind of took on life of its own, right? I mean, if you can see, there's no two years of DCAC that's ever the same. We're kind of beta testing some things. Maybe we'll we'll keep a few things from that last set, but on the new one, we're gonna change that out. We've not dialed in, the soup's not done cooking, but I do know that we will commit more time and energy and effort and focus into this one than we've had in any other year before. Because in many ways, we renewed our romance and I fell back in love with the conference itself, but I think it was the podcast that we did that did that. So the podcast was a byproduct of complaints from DCAC and the, the DCAC was stacked in a way to where I got to hear. I mean, remember I, that's the first time I met you actually. Now we think about it is I asked you to come speak at my conference mm. and you're like, who is this dope? What is this dopey little conference I've never even heard of? And then you showed up and like, uh, what was your thoughts the first year you came? It blew my mind and it has always blown my mind. But I really found the freedom you gave the speakers to have didn't have to be in as much corporate speak. It was, um, which is hard to do because we work for corporations and many of them are very public, you know, funded and there's, and so they're able to be very transparent. And it's, I like it when people are able to be really, real, real. And you also, the, um, at almost every conference I go to, there is a CEO or a true thought leader, one or two of them. At DCAC, it's the most I've ever seen. I mean, we could name them um, from all of the big hyperscales. They enjoy coming and they make themselves available. I also didn't feel hustled by vendors all that much. And I don't mind vendors. They got a job to do, spend a lot of time with them. When I go to events, I'm going to one tomorrow and I'll make myself available to them. But it was just that whole experience, the whole thing of thought leaders being very transparent. I felt like um, not a lot of corporate speak came away with, I'm a note taker, pages and pages of notes that really let me think and then um, the vibe of the community. So I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. That's unrehearsed, but that's how I feel. Well, listen, I appreciate that because I, um, we 
didn't think that the industry needed another conference. We just felt like it needed a better one. So like you're a great example of the conference has allowed me to meet so many people that I would have otherwise never had the opportunity to meet, but I wanted to hear from you, right? I heard about you. I, you know, people are like, have you heard about this guy? And finally I was like, Hey, by way of introduction, my name is Kirk and I got this little thing going on. I would love for you to come to Austin, uh, happy to cover your costs if that's what it takes. And then I just never told people what to talk about, like what you do and how you do it. Um, it's probably things that are going to get a lot of attention, but what people don't understand is those are the things that are just above the waterline, right? All the things below the waterline, you know, little ducks, legs kicking like a pack of ninjas. It's not the same as the, you know, and I knew that that, that thing that's below the waterline is your why that's your purpose, you know? And and I wanted to understand like, why, why are you doing all these things and how did you get into that stuff? And, and I think that you spoke at DCAC and that's how I met you. And then that's, I mean, you were mentioning another lady, Missy, right? And yeah, never, from switch. never met her. And I don't know if I've talked to her since mm-hmm. probably one of the most highly requested um, decks that we, we've ever had. And one of the most impressive that we've ever given that year, we ran it like a Ted talk where it was just individual contributors kind of going, cause I've done firesides and mm-hmm. panel. Like there's no, whatever, you right. know, we're going to continuously change things. And we have a couple dynamic lineups, I think for this year, but I think, um, it was more of me finding people and saying, I just want you to talk about whatever you're most passionate about, because I knew that if they are radiating that passion for you to sit in the stands or the, a lot of conferences, people don't even sit around and listen, which is, I don't understand that. Right. I mean, like there's plenty of time to network, but the reason why I want to take the pressure of the vendors off you and by putting them in the fishbowl with us is so that it wasn't like uh, a constant, like, okay, now I'm going to walk out this door and they're all sitting there waiting and they need their time. They had their time all the time with you. So it's not as intense. And then the use and the Kavas and whoever else in the world are approachable, Mm -hmm. right? So they're human beings. You, you know, the people that are on the operator and enterprise side that have these huge visions, that's great, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to bring those visions to life Mm -hmm. unless the ecosystem of the industry, those architects, the engineers, the contractors and tradesmen, the people that make the widgets and the gear and the commission it, none of them are going to bring your vision to life if they don't understand. And sometimes you don't know how to explain it. So they're going to listen to you and interpret it. And maybe there's things that they'll introduce. You know how many times from DCAC I've gotten later phone calls or emails that are like, Hey, thanks. I got to hear this guy talk. Uh, or this lady was talking about X, Y, and Z. And then we engaged with them and told them that we did this. They didn't know that this, that we had this and they were able to discover some sort of unique thing that advanced the industry in some way. Right. And, that's the thing I think I was the most proud of when we were doing DCAC is I was just randomly pulling people that I wanted to hear from, or I wanted to hear on that topic. I needed to learn more about AI as an example. So I would go get AI experts. You know, I think I got the CEO and founder of AI.ai, which is, he could be the second most impressive speaker we've ever had at DCAC. You know, he's NASA and all these other things. And, and um, that's a true authority on AI. Right. And tell me, you know, he went really deep into what the autonomous driving vehicle uh, model will look like. But, you know, going back to something that you were talking about earlier is you were you were trying to talk about like, hey, when will we, you know, when will we code lock something? When will we change something in this industry? Like, why do we keep doing this and why do we keep doing that? And and that's a part of our industry theme, too, is because we're in the industry of change. No industry evolves as fast as ours. Do you. Are you familiar with any industries that change holistically from globally as aggressively as our industry does? 
not even a little. In fact, we comment around here all the time about it, it's almost not even worth commenting on anymore. Where we, and I know you've done it on your podcast five years ago. If you had a, a three megawatt deal, and a lot of our people in the industry or my listeners, those were big deals back then. That was, that was your year. Yeah, that was some sales rep just made right? a deal. Like just it's unbelievable. And now it gets, you know, they, that goes to this group, right? They're like, we pick our teeth with those ones. Do you want right. this? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, right. There, there's a place for them. And we are an enterprise company, even though we have hyperscale customers. We are, our heart and soul is, the, is our multi-tenant. But it is just by way of definition, it, you know, we're not looking at, man, can I get to a 50 megawatt substation or maybe a hundred megawatts of substation. It is, can I get two or three of those SMRs out on my site? Cause I'm going to need 1200, 1500 megawatts at this campus. So think about so. that pent up demand that you're talking about and the trends and the way that they've shifted in the last five years. So try to imagine what it'll be in five years from now. Yeah. When, when we fully mm -hmm. begin to adopt AI, AR, VR, autonomous driving vehicles, mm -hmm. drones, and all the other explosions that we'll see from cloud and IOT and EIIO, right? right. So, we are going to be explosive. I think that we're in a crisis right now. I think that we're not responding or reacting fast enough to the shortage of labor that's going to come due to the byproduct of massive growth and demand of technology, similar to what we saw as a byproduct of COVID. But I think it's just going to continue to grow. And I think that, you know, we've had these massive plateaus we've hit as an industry. And I think that we'll have a few more still. I think that. You know, you were talking about Kerry Getz's book and standardizing on language. I'm like, we'll, we'll never standardize on language. It'll never happen. I'll tell you why. Because guys like Dean Nelson with big fat brains are going to run around and be like, instead of data centers, we're calling it digital infrastructure now. Or I'm, I'm only right, right. arbitrarily, right. Dean, I wasn't, maybe it was you, maybe it wasn't, but everyone knows right, who you are. Right. So I use that example. But you understand what I'm saying? Like, we will evolve as an industry. The, the, the keywords and tricky phrases we use will evolve with that. And we'll probably collect some from other industries as we kind of grow more into I think our labor forces are going to eventually end up kind of um, getting so stressed that they'll be shared and distributed instead of having groups like KW that are only focused on one thing. Maybe they're not. Right. right. But we are experts in this industry, meaning like I'm not going to go build hospitals as fast as I can data centers. I'm not going to go build high tech semiconductor fabrication plants as fast as I can data centers. Can I? All day. <laughs> But it's not the same, right? Building data centers is a rhythm and it's a cadence and operating them is a rhythm and a cadence and establishing those things. You want to have on one side as little change as possible. And on the delivery side, you want as much as you can to arrive at that most economically efficient price per megawatt at the fastest scale possible, yeah. right? So things are going to never, until we've hit a plateau, which we won't for years, we're never going to standardize on language within the industry. But, um, and we won't standardize on delivery means and methods because new products are going to arrive as a byproduct of circumstance of industry, right? Such as supply chain, right? And people will adopt different things that they never have, or they'll just learn to do, to do design engineering around those applications where they don't need them. And they'll, they'll bury the risk at, you know, the network topology or something else. Yeah. Right. I'm going to push back a little bit. Ooh. A little fun pushback. First of all, I'm going to agree. One of the things that you said, um, the existential threat that we have is the labor shortage or supply chain of people. And you, you mean it, it's obvious from all of your conversations that you don't mean that in a, um, 
in a in a way. It's like how do we attract the the fact of the matter is if we if we build out what we can imagine, there's not enough people, much less electrical grid or whatever. Like we've this is a problem that has to be solved or or we're not gonna be able to build out the infrastructure here or anywhere. Um my perspective is, yeah, I agree. That is, if not the most significant, certainly in the in the bucket of two or three. How do we survive? How do we provide enough energy? Not just clean energy, just energy. Like, and then however you want to get there, uh, we talk. Well, nukes got all this power. You got the transmission for it. Like that's the long uh, pole in the tent is the regulation to get transmission built to go and, and extend it to whatever infrastructure you want. If we're building at 15, 20, like orders and orders and orders of magnitude. So there is a lot there. And for sure, um, onboarding people, first of all, finding people that are, uh, willing and able, you usually describe it as humble, 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 hungry, and smart, smart, right? It's Pat Lencioni, you know, he keep characteristics of an ideal team player. Yeah. Right. And he doesn't, the last one's not technically smart. He just, that's how I codified it. Right. Yeah. So humble, hungry, and smart. You gotta, we, when we interview people, we just look for that. Like, do they, are they hungry? Yeah. Cause if you take someone that's hungry, like regardless, regardless of what you throw at them, it's right. not as though that it's not, you want people that are hungry for this reason. It's not like, they need your emotional affirmation and support to trigger them to go. It's, it's the other side of that. You couldn't stop them if you tried. Right. They're dedicated and focused and, and they're hungry to do this, right? And you want those ones that are just driven from the inside out. External motivation is fantastic, but it's not going to ever take the place for the ability to have the discipline to hold yourself accountable. Right. And I think the military squeezes a large part of that into us. Now it's a small number, less than one half of 1% of the US population ever joined the military, but those people coming out, they don't even know this industry exists. They don't know about this industry. They didn't, what, what's a data center? They don't realize that they touch it 50 times a day using their phone, right? They just don't understand. They're so removed and disconnected from this industry because it's still in its infancy in many ways. It's just not as prevalent as going back home from where you started from and doing a job because you have a cousin or an uncle or whatever that works for whoever. And they have a, con a contact, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, no, you intentionally and deliberately need to go and try to park your skill set in this industry that not only needs you, but they value those things that you bring. Yeah. I mean, it's just a different skill set altogether because the one thing that transcends all branches is basic training takes us back down to one basic standard of how we approve, like how we look. And that is it an aggressive mindset that's defaulting forward, which means that we're not going to throw it too short. We're always going to throw it too long because we are going to be in a fight to win for everything that we do. If this is what my chief or whoever my senior NCO or whoever my commanding officer XO tells me to do, I'm going to go do it. I'm going to ensure that I do it at the best level that I could operate at because anything South, of the best that I can do was simply never going to be tolerated. Right. Even if it's good enough from a metric perspective, they're like, like my kids, 
what kind of grade did you get? Well, I got to be, well, did you do your best? Sure did. I'm like, that's all I could ask for. Got an A. Oh, really? Did you do your best? Well, I didn't. I was like, well, then, you know, make sure you got to do your best. Like we don't reward the result. We reward the process, you know, and how it goes because the process is what you get that allows you to go into this industry and bring skills. Day one, minute one. Yeah. It's just a lexicon. It's a language they have to learn. You know, there's, it's the product of immersion. Once veterans are in this space, give them a month. They came from alphabet soup language. You know I mean? Everything in the military is based on the, you're you're a movie guy. Remember, um, good morning, Vietnam. Yeah. Robin Williams. Remember the guy, remember the guy like, excuse me. And he has his joke and he's the really, you know, point extra guy. And then uh, Robin Williams says, I think that the VC and the KP and the, right. uh, the VIP is VAP. Right. I just, that's, that's the, that's the military. Don't you think? I mean like that whole, that whole thing that Robin Williams did in that movie, that is perfect on how we use acronyms yeah. in the military. How's that any different in this industry? No, it's not different, but they will standardize. And here's what I mean. On some things, I, on some things. What I think is going to happen, things are moving so fast. I mean, another way of us saying uh, scale or velocity or these existential threats. Um, you know, the more, the more we use data on our phone, however we want to describe it, the more we want, the more we want, the more we make, the more we make, the more we use, the more we use, the more, like it's this thing. Yeah. We're the ones that are driving the, the, the For demand. Sure. But so what it's, like in every way, um, it it is, and I'm not sure on some days that it's not to our ultimate doom, um, but it is, uh, it's this machine. And so if the focus of the whole world is on this, I think whether it's, you know, a major player or two, or it's, um, you know, maybe it's just the marketplace that begins to define, um, terminology i mean we already have some you know you've got ashray out there with terminology you've got itil you know we needed itil to come along in fact in back in the early days uh i remember probably circa 2006 um our cto at the time said we're all going to get itil certified and we're like why why would we do that almost within a year at the most 18 months all of our customers began in rfp and rfqs or whatever saying are you certified either by ISO or ITIL? Yeah. Because when you say patch management, we want to know what you mean. When you say release management, what do you mean? When you say change management, what do you mean? We need a lexicon that we agree. If you look at how package handling or material handling has happened in big facilities, how they just receive it at the um, dock, get it in, get it racked, stacked, mini UPS cabled up machines are doing all of this stuff. They don't have uh, multi-tier um, facilities in terms of uh, like floors because floors are for human beings. They stack our equivalent would be six, eight, ten racks high. And that machine knows where everything goes. And so when somebody goes to put something in my data center, they want from the second it hits the dock until it's generating electrons, it's making it money or selling you know, feeding up consumers, music, or whatever it is that it's doing, I need it to move. There's no way we can do it without standardizing. So whether it's our customers force the standardization on us, we build it as an early adopter ourselves, I'll bet you because of the velocity of things, 
in the next five years, you will see much more standardization in the lexicon. It's just going to. I think as we get closer to where the soup's done cooking, you're right. I think that we're still reinventing ourselves too much, don't you? Sometimes, but I think things are more and more. Um, there is a lot of innovation for sure, but in terms of terminology, uh, especially as like in our world, we're doing more and more business with the federal government. They don't want. They want what's a. I need standard words that mean standard things to measure against. And it doesn't matter how efficient you are, and it doesn't matter any of these other things. If you're not meeting my lexicon, you can't come and play. So whether the government decides it for us, or which I hope we will standardize ourselves, and I'm not saying it's easy, but in all of these things, especially now that our industry is under so much pressure and is exploding exponentially, I really do believe this framework is going to be here in less than 10 years, probably five, a, a significant framework by which, oh, so whether that's a, you know, iMasons or um, Nomad Futurists or one of these other big academy groups, we do our own internal academy, but, but words will get adopted, phraseology will become normative. Um, we don't even have, I, I, I'm not going to say you're wrong. I would like to see those things that you're talking about. Yeah. I think that as you suggested twice, a lot of those influences of change are driven by your clients because mm -hmm. whether it's the government or someone else that says, sure. this is what we call it and that's right. what it is. Right. And, and sometimes it'll be your, your, it will be your ecosystem because I do think that at some point the labor forces as well as the supply chains will be grow so homogenous that um, the magnitude of infrastructure that's required will allow us to build back plans to service multiple verticals of industry, uh, including ours, which would include, you know, enterprise end users as well as large scale owner operators on the high on um, and anyone in between. Right. So industrial or commercial, I guess you could say. So th there's going to be a point where we're going to have a common thing that as we blend, but we're just, I mean, like we're, think about it. The automotive industry was around for how long before they started really code locking everything they're doing? How long have we been here since the late eighties or early nineties, depending on if you really want to count the reboot in 2000. So it was like, we're still pretty young. And I still think, I think that we change more aggressively to where the means and methods that we adopt may change and because of that, the language changes with it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Or the, the construct and the way that we stack partners and, and people that are suppliers and vendors to get products out the door and, and the way that our, our customers engage with us. There's plenty of times, uh, even on QTS data centers, as owners reps, which is our primary line of business, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've represented um, owner operators mm -hmm. and in the same building we can operate or we can represent their tenants mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so there are plenty of times where we've had a tenant who's hired us to manage the fit out as an owner's rep as well as the operators hired us to manage the everything that stops you know with the pdu level mm -hmm. all the way to the substation so now what happens when i have two of my own pms one representing you know each customer that has a, a fiduciary responsibility to each one mm -hmm. but they're more collaborative now to draw those things together and and i think that as you see arc between those two pieces continue to grow you'll see it grow into other industries as well high tech specifically first because we're seeing a lot of demand from that side it just 
we haven't really raced to that. You would think I would have with knowing that like the genesis behind what we do is we love this industry and this industry is the greatest. It offers everybody the opportunity to be great as long as you're willing to work. But, um, I viewed this industry as the solution for where there's a dichotomy of two uh, existential threats to me. One is the pent up demand for growing labor in this industry that's slowing down or ultimately can slow down the growth of this industry because we simply don't have enough people to go build the widgets in the manufacturing plants that go to these data centers and we don't have the tradesmen and the skill or the professional labor and talent to go put it together and do all the other things that go with that. Right. And, um, and then again, when we're done, we may not even have enough people that are, are qualified to go operate it. Right. Right. So we're going to have to catch our breath and, and those that are investing in the labor right now, and there's a couple operators that are, they see it mm-hmm. and they are throwing a lot of weight behind figuring out how to draw from resource pools that were, uh, previously not targeted, right? And for me, the, the dichotomy was the existential threat of our industry and the growing, there's a, depending on which study you find, there's anywhere between 20 and 22 veterans that kill themselves every day. So as you were saying, you know, let's say we lost arbitrarily 8,000 soldiers, sailors, and airmen since September 11th mm-hmm. in conflict. We've lost, you know, 250,000 people since then that we can count for Mm -hmm. from suicide Mm -hmm. when they've been back. And the people that are most afflicted are the infantry Mm -hmm. and, and the infantry are the ones that somehow they just don't realize this industry finds value in them too, because they're non-technical, they're not air force power pros, or they're not Navy submarine. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that kind of, it makes sense. Yeah. If right. you could do that, you could probably understand the UPS. Right. That's how I started. But the reality is, is I learned that the greatest range that you have are combat infantry from Marine Corps and army. And those are the best on the CapEx side, which represents 90 cents of every dollar spent in this industry, probably. Right. So there's a huge volume and void there that it, it, it doesn't begin with the operators. It, it ends with them and the enterprise and users because it really starts with the trades and, mm-hmm. and all the people that need manufacturing and just smart hands and professional labor in general. Mm-hmm. And you have all these people that are coming out and they, they're like, look, I don't know what to do next. And it's overwhelming the anxiety of transitioning and not knowing one where I'm going to live in terms of state. How's my family or my siblings going to deal with that? I don't have a skill set. They're nuking themselves out, getting all freaked out. They're like, I don't even understand that. I don't understand that language. Can I get to I'm like, listen, you didn't join the military to make money. You did it to make a difference. And when we all got in the military, none of us had a clue what we were doing. And in some cases within six months, you're deployable. Meaning like it doesn't take that long to go die for your country, right? So like, it doesn't take as long to be effective as you think. And I think that some people get it. And and those that are, um, like I said, there's always two types of thinkers. There's those that think by leaning in and leaning forward and they're gonna be more aggressive in their approach and they're gonna throw the Frisbee uh, too far. Mm -hmm. And then you have those that are gonna be in a defensive posture. There's companies that we see that are in this space right now. They're they're absolutely in a defensive posture. They're, uh, maybe they had a lot of windfalls. They, you know, they just want, um, you know, they're not in a stage in which they want to be disruptive and continue to grow. They're more of this, we love the harmony on the returns. Our investors really care about this and they just want transparency and predictability. So don't do anything different unless just try to go back and maintain this. If we can do that forever, it's great. Some companies are not like that. There are 
David versus Goliaths that are out there trying to go more, go, go get more than their fair share of the opportunity. And those are the people that are, are going to be bold enough to go hire veterans coming out of the military and say, look, man, you don't have everything I need, but you have the character I need. And I could probably pressure test you harder than most people. Like I remember having all these military guys on my team and one of my, uh, I worked in a past life. I worked for a data center operator. I worked for a few of them and one of them, the CEO, good friend, awesome guy. And he mistook how confident people were for arrogance. And I'm like, no, there's no one's shooting at him today. Everybody's going to go home. Do you get it? So like in relativity terms, everything that that's going to happen today, it's not right. It could be fixed. No one's dying. Do you understand that? That's the emotional range, right? So for me trying to tie this back to where I love this industry, it's given me everything. I got cancer when I was in this industry and this industry rallied behind me to make sure that I got healthy and I had opportunity to everything I wanted. And once I was done, once I healed and once I was, you know, you, you know, you make promises to your bed, you right. know, yourself when you're laying in your bed at MD Anderson or whatever. And I was like, I'll never do X again. And ever since then I've done it. You know, I've just been like every job I interviewed for, I'd be like, I'll give you the best two years of my life. And if we have a good run, maybe I'll reenlist for another two. But other than that, I'm going to there by the time this is done, I didn't, I didn't play this game to play first base for the whole life. I wanted to be in the outfield. I want to be in the infield. I wanted to, now I want to be on the, I want to be the third base coach, you know, and then right. I want to be the GM, you know? So like, you have to want, you have to one, love this game. Right. You have to want to play this game. Right. And if you want to play, then, then people will want to hire you because that, that energy is infectious right. and you have to create a culture around that, that it lets people kind of feed into it. I feed off that culture myself. This is not the Kirkle Fell show where I'm at. Right. I come to work so that these people can inspire me and make me feel safe and make me fulfilled with what I do. It just so happens we get to go build amazing data centers for some of the greatest companies on earth, simultaneously creating voids to backfill with more veterans, but ultimately will reduce the suicide rate. So what do I have to complain about? I have the greatest job on earth. I get to work with the two greatest groups ever, data center people and veterans. Right. So every day is awesome. We get to go work in, in all over the country. I mean, we're all over the globe. We're in five countries and you know, the podcast is growing and I get to talk to more people and learn. I'm, I'm just constantly learning. You know, I sat down with the CEO of en- Enchanted, uh, Enchanted Rock, Natural Gas, which if you don't know anything about the Enchanted Rock platform, I think that that you being a nerd and you thinking that energy will overcome labor, which you could be right. I would say this, you need to do some, you need to scratch the paint because I'll be releasing his podcast, but it's fascinating to hear how people got to that. Like, how did you get to that? I mean, he's got an Enron background. He started with regular generators and then he just arrived to this thing naturally and was like, this is it. This is, we figured it out and this is the future and this is what, and ESG is such a factor anyways, that they're, they're emerging at the right time, probably for their product to be placed at the right place at the right time. Especially when you have countries like Ireland that say, Hey, no more data centers, unless you're going co-generation with all natural gas, right. On demand. So, there's places that that's a really, um, really strong application for maybe hasn't made itself all the way. It's getting back to this place. You know, you're going to see that maybe you see that more on your side than me, but I think that there's, there's another, there's a lot of those groups like cleaner arc, or, you know, I'm, I'm working with, we have a client that is doing data centers and they're intending to power their data center with nuclear reactors. That's intense. That's awesome. Yeah. Now you understand why I get to do some awesome stuff. You know, yeah. we get to talk to all these people about the labor shortage, the power problem, the land problems. 
the secondary and third tier market problems, you know, all those things that come with connectivity around that. And then again, supply chain and labor. Yeah. Look, for, I'm a, a evangelist for people of any, um, I cannot think of outside of maybe medical field, any part of the industry or industry that is not either directly or very closely directly connected to digital infrastructure. I, you're legal, you're a product manager, you're a hands-on trades person, you're security, you're fill in the blank, like in, in every way. And if social activism, for example, I know some people that that's a big deal. Well, <clears throat> we're not making less data, we're making more. Yeah, we're the all content creators. That, right? this, we're all content <clears throat> creators. Don't you want to be at the heart of the organizations that are building out the digital infrastructure for the world, some of the most important industry on earth, and you get to help influence what is meant by diversity. You get to influence what is meant by a living wage. You get to influence what is meant by um, uh, sustainable use of the environment around you. Like, wouldn't you want to be that? Wouldn't you want to be that whether you're your acumen is in legal or it's it's in software development or artificial tech. I don't look at it any of that, but that's all true. Yeah. I look at it in improving the lives. <laughs> what we do at the end of the day changes lives. Think about the ER room and getting right. an application. Hey, we're here. We think this is this. We have to get him in their emergency room and he needs to have surgery or sure. technology is what's going to save that life in that situation. Technology in the hands of the right professional, right. medical professional. Right. But I'm all we're doing is helping this entire world. In many cases, if it, I mean, the knife cuts both ways, right? It could harm society too, sure. as we're learning. But I think that, you know, to your point that you were talking about, we're, we're, how far away do you feel that we are today from the fifth industrial revolution, which is essentially when we are going to fall into harmony with all these technologies that we've created to where they're no longer dominating us and influencing society. We again have control over that and we, we've adjusted. Yeah. you know, to how we have a much healthier symbiotic relationship. I'm an optimist. I believe in, like, I look at America not from September 11th. I look at America from September 12th, right? right? I think that there's more good than bad. There's more greatness in our country than all the negative that everything you sure. see, even the political. I think that what I've read about Twitter since Elon has taken it over and all the information right. that has been surfaced. I mean, there's a lot of things that are, um, they're created um, not organically. I mean, What's that's the, all. What is stuff. the fifth? Is that the cyborg or what is it? It's the symbiotic relationship we have with tech, right? So that's where uh, I think where we hit a plateau is the way I interpreted it. Where like I'm never going to have an implant unless it's like for a pacemaker or something. Like, right. like I'm never going to be that guy that has the phone on his hand or engraved into his stuff. I'm I'm actually um, I doubt I'll be the person that walks around with a pair of glasses on that has integration into my phone. Like I'm. First of all, I don't wear anything on my body. And second, I don't want to be tracked by that type of stuff. You know, I'm sensitive <laughs> enough about how much my information is being sure. created and shared. So that I I think that that's what the fifth industrial revolution will be is that pivot back where we swing back and we've, we feel like, oh, um, we've been able to discover this really amazing thing that that is uh, addictive and infectious and it, it has dopamine and it has all these other, you know, this all the various things that our body creates as a byproduct of using this, which could be in many cases. And from some surveys, it's just as addicting as the chemicals that are released as a byproduct of heroin, right? right? So you have this. And like someone was telling me the study that um, like 
girls on TikTok today, like they're, uh, it's like the equivalency of the emotional range that they place as boys watching Pornhub, right? So you're like, okay, so at some point, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Not saying either of those things are good. I'm saying we are giving freedoms to people to use things and there's gonna be a point in time in which they realize too much of a good thing is a bad thing and I'm gonna have to find a better relationship with my technology to where I am a good human being. I'm, I'm still good uh, in my case, you know, I'm a son, a brother, a husband, a father, a CEO, you know, all these various things that I have that go for me, right? And I, I have to take that back to my constitution as a human and this technology is disruptive and it has an impact on, on it. That little rectangle could hijack me and, and throw off my entire week uh, if I miss Monday morning because I'm watching something on social media, right? So how many people do we know have been afflicted by technology and, and not having the ability to govern themselves in the way that they use it? I think that we will learn to discover what's best for us over the course of time. And right now, we live in a free society with free will and people are allowed to do whatever they want to as long as it's within the construct of the law. And I think certain people like right now, but heroin could be legal. I still wouldn't do it. You get it? Because right. I understand what's best for me. And those are the relationships you have with yourself. Right. I think the technology at some point will, I don't think that, I think that we'll have a different way in which we use it. I think that there'll be uh, moments of time in which we'll deliberately not have it, or we'll make sure it's absent from certain elements that make us more human. And that's, look, this isn't Kirk Ovell. I mean, I'm a caveman. This is Kirk reading or listening to podcasts on this subject because I'm fascinated about I'm a parent. I got three kids. What's the impact? You know, are they am I making little tiny brains out of these kids because I don't monitor their stuff, right? I mean, I do obviously to the extent, but we have to learn to live with this stuff without killing ourselves. And I think that that's why people like Elon are like, hey, can we pump the brakes on AI for a bit? And I don't think the matter, I mean, the metaverse will be real when the full economy just for metaverse exists and in its entirety without being, you know, having been pressure tested. And I think that we are completing components that create the metaverse in its entirety, but it's not fully functioning yet. Do yeah. you agree? Yeah, 100%. And I think it's inevitable that there will be an element of that and there will be some people that live primarily there instead of in the reality. Yeah. Well, we're going to take five minutes into philosophical um, then we're going to come back to technical, but just kind of I tend to be a very libertarian person, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, especially as I get older, with uh, a lot of conservative tendencies and the tendencies that don't that, that look like I'm conservative, it's because I'm a libertarian. Like I, I couldn't pass people. a limits test for any of this. So. <laughs> I uh, get it. So uh, you know, marry who you want. You wouldn't get. You know, you may you may not get married in my church. You know, ha however, you know, work it out. But I don't want to impose. Um, a number of things that, that just kind of my personal philosophy, but um, I'm always curious about. So I was on a modern CTO the other day, and they asked me about on their podcast. They asked me what did I think about Elon and the pumping the brakes on AI. I said, man, that's a great idea. I just don't know how that happens. The geopolitics of that, you know, if if we pump it here, and I'm not going to solve it's it. weaponized now, so you can because you're afraid of. So it's, there's so many, there's so many, um, you know, there's so much complexity with that. I, I just don't know how that happens. Having said that, I have three girls that grew up in early adopters of social media and I use social media all the time for certain things. My dirt bike racing, uh, the reporters from the pits on what's going on, disc golf, 
Um, so a lot of sporting events. I don't use it for politics. I don't use it for religion stuff. I don't do, I have other groups and other things that I go to for that because it usually devolves into something else. And there's study after study after study in my mind when human beings don't have to strive, we don't have to burn calories for something very quickly. It is to our detriment, you know, whether that is in, um, critical thinking, whether that's in physical exercise, nobody wants to walk. Like if we, if we were super hardcore about this, you wouldn't have used a car today. You would walk like, why are we using technology? My body, you can see, you know, I got moves now. I guarantee you when I can max the PT test 35 years ago, my wife did not marry this shape. She <laughs> married a completely different shape because it's easy and cheap or whatever for me to get food and the lack of discipline in that area. My mind's probably never worked harder, but other parts of my body. And whenever human beings, when that, um, when we can get the things in our reptile brains that are um, high variety and high availability, so whether it's something like pornography or a drug or a McDonald's response, whatever, easy, high variety, right? Um, it, it's it. We, 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 we almost can't stop shoving it in our mouth. And then the emotional consequences of that, I've seen so many non-religious, just um, neuroscientists and people that study dopamine hits. Andrew Huberman comes to mind. I've seen him on multiple podcasts of Rogan and Friedman and many other people. He's a neuroscientist at, I think he's Stanford, just a really smart, capable guy. I've seen him. Yeah, he's smart. And just... Here's what happens, it, what the studies seem to indicate after we dopamine, after dopamine, after dopamine, choose your area of um, excess, it almost always destroys that area, which is really interesting to me because once upon a time, something said the wages of sin are death, or you take, you take a, not to make a religious statement, but you take any good thing and you extrapolate it to constant nonstop extreme it usually becomes a noose around your neck. It, you know, it enslaves you because you get caught up into, if we don't work off our physical bodies, we decay. We're all supposed to age, but we shouldn't decay the way that we decay now. Why do we de decay now? Because we don't stress our body in a healthy way. Um, we don't eat or drink or sleep in a healthy way, most people. And you'd think with all of this affluence and all of this technology, instead of, enhancing the human's experience. We can exploit it if we're not self-disciplined, but I don't know how to do it. We can exploit it to uh, harm ourselves, but I don't understand that. Or the challenge I think that's bef before us is how do we, with some of these tools, random in, it's not like installing seat belts in a car or telling you to wear your helmet when you are oh, whatever, you know, finding some way, an age barrier to consumption of certain things. Some of this text out in the world and to, um, it, I, I think it's, it's like my wife keeps wanting to paint, uh, plant bamboo. She loves bamboo. And I'm like, that would be a disaster. We'll get thrown out of our neighborhood. Why? Because if that sucker gets out of the box at all, it is a wildly aggressive invasive species and it will take over. I had no idea. Oh yeah. It's extremely um, invasive. It's almost, you have to, dig up the ground roots and all and get rid of it. Are you not supposed to grow it then or you let it grow where it's supposed to grow where there are bamboo forests or whatever here in the South, we have a thing called kudzu 
where back in the 50s, as we were building highways, they brought in these plants from Asia and they put them, and now it's everywhere. It covers everything, if you, especially if you go south, because there has no natural pests or enemies and it just covers all the nothing pine trees, yeah. nothing eating it. So anyway, I, I don't know. We recognize, I think more and more people are recognizing unrestrained tech in particular out on the internet, these things that cause these dopamine hits, but how we rein them in and restrict them. Um, I know how we do it in our family. I control the router and I control the things. If you're going to live in my house, connect to my stuff. These are the things that are, but I, you know, it is a, I think the challenge is pretty extreme in front of us. So good question. Let me tell you what I think the answer is, right? And it's the answer. It's the same reason why we have a podcast. I started the podcast first because I couldn't get, the conference was once a year. The biggest complaint from the conference is that it was only once a year. The second biggest complaint was they didn't get enough time to listen to those speakers, right. which is why I stopped doing panels and started like the most I'll do is fireside chats with two people because I don't want to lose that much airtime. Um, but I, I also knew that there's a group like I don't listen to any media. I don't like, I, I kind of do secondhand through people like you, people that I know, like, and trust that, uh, I, you know, you announced you're a libertarian. So that knows that that's the optics that I'll view everything through. And I know what that filter is. It's the libertarian filter. So as I get data, I'm like, oh, well falls into this. That makes sense. I understand why he would say that because of this, but I understand that overtone through you as I do. I'm friends like you with someone from every demographic and right. everybody's just that I do not care about 95% of the things you do on earth. In right. life. I do care if you pay your taxes or right. break the law, but those are mainly the right. only things that the rest are for you to figure out with your maker type of thing. Right. And for me, my job is to go live the best that I can and help as many people as I can. That's my purpose. So I could reach the base with these podcasts, but simultaneously what I learned was the only authenticity, the truth I can get was coming from something unfiltered, which is something like this podcast. Mm -hmm. Podcasts are meant to get, to get fact and truth. Mm -hmm. When I say fact, I mean, that's where you get the dudes on Rogan that have the big fat brain or Lex and they're talking about flux capacitors and you know things that are just, they were doing long division in the crib and I was still sucking my thumb in high school, right? right. These people, I haven't seen the ball since kickoff compared to them, right? right. I need to learn, that's fact. Right. Truth is a little bit something different sometimes. We all live in our own realities. Mm -hmm. So your truth and mine can be different. And, and that being said is, is that's the philosophical part that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I know this, if I get on a podcast like a Rogan, and I listen to someone, I know how to handicap exactly what just fell out of their face. Mm. Because again, I'm going to apply whatever filter I'm applying to them because we know enough about them to know, hey, for everything that they said, seven out of 10 of those things are 100% truth, mm -hmm. you know, or are fact. I'm sorry, the other parts are just their truth. Mm -hmm. So it's their, it's subjective to what they think or what they saw on their own experiences. And there's no way to compare my experiences to yours or anybody else's. So I have to be like, I'm going to take some of that with a grain of salt. But I knew that I was coming closer to the source. I was bypassing the traditional media of all forms and fashions because I think it's all biased now. And I don't think I'm going to get objectivity. And for me, I just, I want to know what a ball is and I want to know what a strike is and I want it to be consistent, right? The second part is, is it, these podcasts break away everything. Like the long versions are great because you don't stop the thought cycle. Like you could just keep on rolling and rolling and rolling. And you're, you're hearing the passion and the conviction of what they're saying. And you measure and weigh what they're telling you against their... Like, is this person ready to die for what they're telling me about? Then I'm going to probably believe them. If they're, if they're like, 
Kind of. I think I'm pretty sure that that's true. You're going to be like, <laughs> that means it's not. Right. And I, and I'm going to take that with a grain of salt as well. Right. You know, so the podcasts are the greatest way to stop these, these problems that in society, if they're problems at all, are challenges or frustrations of society. I don't, I'm not, again, I'm the diehard optimist. I'm the guy that had three kids like you and I would go and I would take them trick or treating right. and we'd come home and they, I wasn't like, you can have three pieces and then put the bag away. I'd be like, go nuts, right. eat everything you can. And then they would get to the point where they're like, I don't feel good. I want to throw up. I'm like, yeah, that, that's, that's the limit. You want to get rid of the whole bag then? Let's just get rid of that. It makes right. you feel bad. Let's get, right. and they discovered on their own, like, I don't feel good. And I, I guess I say this to you because one, it's going to be a combination of you and people speaking truth and fact into those that are listening that are going to discover things they've never heard before in their lives because they don't have the time to read a book or they don't have a time to do this or when they're at home, they're in their habits, which include watching, you know, the next version of this or that, or, mm -hmm. but there's not a lot of people that are taking the time on their drives to, to educate themselves through an audio book or a podcast or during their workouts, whatever, during their morning walks, like, I don't waste an opportunity to listen to a podcast from you or Dave Liggett at Data Center Hawk or Data Center. Like I'll find any data center podcast in this industry because there's nothing right. that like every day I have to learn more and I have to realize I've never arrived. I'm a student of this industry and I will be till the day I die. I get to be immersed in a lot of cool stuff. And that means that I simply understand what people are talking about more than others, maybe, but that doesn't mean I know it all. And like I can't begin to tell you the number of things I've learned just on the finance side of what we do. And to that point, you talking about technology and its capabilities and limitations is not driven. Like your company will not be driven based on that. It'll be driven on a combination of multiple things. One, what your client tells you you need to do. And two, what the people are that your financial sponsors are, whether you're public or privately held, they're going to come in and say, hey, listen, um, this, if you're smaller, you guys are monsters, but if you're a smaller emerging group and you're uh, owned by uh, a REIT that has other groups in a different asset class, they may homogenize in the way they communicate with you and that portfolio and this portfolio is shameless. They share the same language along all fronts because that's how they have to standardize. But there will always be opposing forces, which is why I'm like, I don't really ever need to be beyond 80% complete on anything. Once I hit to the 80% mark on anything, it would take too much effort to optimize that last 20% where I'm better off adding another channel of something, whether it's revenue or ideas for R and D I need to just be satisfied that I'm never going to achieve greater than I want to be at a hundred. Right. It's then what, you if know, you're giving yourself insulin shots, be a hundred percent accuracy. If it's, if it's the things that we're talking about, um, do your best, do your best. Right. And learn. Right. But, but going back to this health thing is getting more people to adopt more podcasts because they're interested And my podcast was not meant like yours. I feel like when I'm done, I need to go listen to three more audiobooks when I listen to your podcast. Cause I'm like, you give me just enough to feel like an infant. So I have to go talk to somebody or read that or listen to that person's podcast on another. Does that make sense? It's just a constant iteration of learning and we're learning in multiple dimensions, right? So I have to figure out, is that what I need to learn today? Or do I need to learn that? Do I need more of the, what we do or the, why we do it type of knowledge. And these podcasts will allow people that have not maybe the environment that they were designed or built in or conditioned in, it didn't have that construct that allowed them to believe or discover that too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And we each discover that our own. There's a time where everybody that was unhealthy, they got fit. They didn't make that decision from an external factor. They woke up one day and said, 
I'm done not feeling good. I'm going to go get healthy. And I, those are decisions. So all these things are decisions and and no one's going to force people to do anything. No one's going to force you to go get to that PT level that, but could you, you absolutely could, if you wanted to, it's a decision, right? So we just need to put your message and those of your guests and those of everybody else out there for others that aren't getting that knowledge and they're not learning. You know, they're not learning because they go to conferences and they just network and they don't sit and listen. The dumbest thing I've ever seen, right? I sit in the front row of every conference I go to genuinely like you. I may not be writing them down, but I'm taking some notes on my phone or something. And I'm like, that's a key word or a cheeky phrase, or that's the line I need to go scratch the paint on because I don't know enough about it. Right. So people just show up and they, they, they treat the industry kind of like a lifestyle that allows them to go party instead of one that allows them to get better and get healthier and stronger. And I think your podcast and those things that you talk about will inspire people to go explore their own limitations and they need to place on themselves with technology. Maybe it's not good for me to have unlimited that. Maybe it's not good for my kids to do that. Maybe it's like uh, pizza. I love pizza. I cannot eat it every day and maintain the level of health I want. Right. And it's, it's just not going to let me be at that level of output and productivity I need to be at. Right. So like we have to find that like the kids that overdosed on too much candy and Halloween, they'll just, they'll wake up one day and be like, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> and, and, yes, I, I go down on those rabbit holes. I'm not going to do that. Let me ask you this. Where do you think, besides we talked about um, people uh, in terms of enough people in our industry, we're having a moment with scale, with all of this other stuff. Like, as, you're, as you look at the next five or seven years, you talk to a bunch of people in our industry, what is it? Is it um, we keep building out these same markets? Is it that we're, we're tier three markets are becoming tier two? Like what? It, what's the look? Uh, if we didn't have a people problem, yeah, and we didn't have an energy grid problem, like what's the what are the things that they're thinking about about how do we continue the acceleration or just delivering it, or is it really those were just the big things that we need to worry about? It's driven by consumer, right? All the eyeball content, video caching and demand for emerging technology comes from us, the consumer, which drives the pent up demand based on where we want to be. So some, sometimes it's cool to live in California and some people we're learning don't want to live there. So we're going to follow that traffic and where they arrive at is where we're going to see markets emerge. And I think that we're seeing that here in Atlanta and Minneapolis and Ohio. And I mean, I live in Austin, Texas. There's a good chance Austin, Texas is going to be a huge boom town for technology, according to some sources. And if that happens, I mean, it makes sense. Texas is a huge state with lots of open space for lots of stuff, right? So you can put tech there and it's a state that incentivizes companies to go and grow there, right? In some pockets, in some form or fashion. But I do think that the more that we spread is where you're going to see the more emergence of regulation versus all the stuff that we just self-impose and govern on ourselves. I think that you're going to start seeing the local municipalities like you're seeing back east kind of pushing things. You, you, they saw it already in Europe and now it's making its way from the east coast and it'll start. I mean, we kind of had some of that on the west coast. But you're going to see that we will arrive to some sort of normalcy and industry indicative standard on regulation on what we do so that you can incorporate that into your scheduling. Um, but I see, uh, I see some, I see some markets that were otherwise always kind of being touched from a secondary or third tier now becoming more primary as power 
his power is going to be more political to get, not just from a capability perspective. I think that you're going to have a hard time getting it because if you're, if your constituents are saying, no, keep that for us, you're going to have a hard time going in and signing. What do you mean keep that for us? Like if, uh, well, why did Dominion change their policy on power in Northern Virginia? Because it was no longer popular to make more data centers. They built the Las Vegas Strip of data centers in Northern Virginia. Right. And, and that was the pride of Northern Virginia. And now they're like, we had our run, right. you know, in Northern Virginia. Now they're not saying they're not going to allow business to continue to grow up, but not, not, the, not like it was, mm -hmm. right? Which is why like, like the quantums, mm -hmm. quantum loopholes are like, look, we're going to go make wholesale campuses for right. you or the enterprise end user right. to come take over space. And that's the best utilization of, that's evolution. That's innovation of what we're doing. Because imagine if we had done that in Northern Virginia, we wouldn't have these small little pockets that were picked over of, you know, all the good parcels are taken. Now it's, you know, little meatballs here and there and there. And people are trying to figure out how to shoehorn the best that they can into those little pockets. Whereas you could migrate to a different market or you could change the entire approach. And I think that you're going to see some groups continue to, it's high stakes poker. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first one through the wall is always the bloodiest. Doesn't surprise me at all. Snowhorn and No Boom are the two guys that are like, let's do it. Right. And I think it's going to work. I think that we get it. I think yeah. that we understand now we've arrived and we've educated ourselves holistically at this collective that we see that that's valuable. Yeah. Right. Have you, are you experienced any kind of renaissance in the number of people that are being recruited out of non-traditional methods instead of just people that look like me and you, or is it still early days? It's early days. It sucks because you have to sell both ends to the middle, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to sell to the customer like a, I mean, think of you guys. Mm -hmm. You're one of the largest in the world. Your team, you know, like uh, I used to do with Lane, you know, I've known Lane yeah. for years, armed to the teeth, right? And those people that have a lot of pressure on them because that's a lot, I mean, that's a, it's a huge lift that yeah. that team has, the delivery team, because yeah. that's the primary product that you use to generate revenue and you can't miss schedules, right. can't let people get hurt, you can't miss budgets. I think there's a lot of pressure. And for those things, they're trying to mitigate risk. And the best way to mitigate risk is to see something that makes you comfortable. And sometimes that's experience. Mm -hmm. So what do you do when you don't have that experience? And how do you offset that? I think that I think that there's a few things to do and we're, we're, we're initiating something using uh, the already established DOD skill bridge program. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, but it's fantastic the way the uncle Sam kind of created that. But I think when I say sell both ends against the middle guys like Lane are super smart and their standard is high and his expectations are going to be razor sharp, mm -hmm. right? Great. Check. Mm -hmm. Now I have to go find someone from the military and convince them that these people in this industry will find value in them and that they should come here, even though they've built submarines or they built battleships or aircraft carriers, or they've built things that, that have nuclear reactors in them that are twice as complicated as us, mm -hmm. but they don't have the word data center in it. So that could be a challenge and, and it's valid. It's a valid challenge. Mm -hmm. However, I also have to convince this person that has a big fat brain that they have enough horsepower that if they brought it over here, they could bring value and they could, they could find significance in what they do and people will, will really appreciate them. And if they do it well enough, they could be put into a position where they could effectively drive change as an outlier in leadership or something. Well, um, I have to sell both. Right. So right now these, 
it's, it's, I'm educating the podcast is allowing me to educate the fleet and not just the Navy fleet, but the army bases, the Marine Corps and air force coast guard. Right. We're broadcasting to all of them. Right. But now you have to realize that every branch of service with the exception of space force has just recently announced that they've missed their quotas. And I think the most they've reached is like 75% of their quotas. Mm. Well, that's not good for national security. So that means they're more likely to try to hold on to some of their ranks that they're getting. So we're getting 25,000 people that leave the military a month right now. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we're catching those ones and then finding those that want to come out and aren't going to just race into something that makes them more comfortable. I'm going to go back to, I'm from Houston. I joined from Houston. I'm going back to Houston, Texas, and I'll find a job. Mm-hmm. No, we need you in this industry. You have such a massive skill set. Don't self-impose something on yourself without understanding the bigger picture. So the podcast is to educate the fleet and all the soldiers, sailors, and airmen out there that, hey, listen, there's a whole nother industry that has a massive presence and you're already touching data centers 10 times a day. Did right. you did you check in for e-commerce or did you get your boarding pass or did you watch that video or do right. social media today? Cool, you touched 10 data centers, congratulations. Right. So my thing is they just don't know it. They just, everyone knows, uh, the, they know the most prevalent term is the cloud. They mm-hmm. just don't realize that that's. We're the sky for the cloud. Yeah. But if you say that and Cyrus one trademarked it, then you get in trouble. Did they really? Yeah. So you got to. <laughs> I didn't oh, yeah. know it. Yeah. I got your back, man. That's that was hilarious. trademarked by them. So I used it before and I was snowhorn as when the did, guy. When did they say that? Is that old? That's pretty old school. Yeah, they, I remember oh, there was, hilarious. I was there when Wojo and all them came up to it and to his credit, Wojo was genius and he's like, yeah. trademark that, that's genius. And now he's like, I'm the home for the cloud. It doesn't sound as cool. Right. The sky for the cloud's bomb, but Cyrus won trademark yeah, it. I'm not as smart as I thought it was. But it's, um, you could use it as long as you reference them, right? Yeah, well, good, now I know. Yeah, so, but it's a cool term, but it's a term that we should not have limited yeah. in our space because we should be able to share that with those that could, can you think of a better way to help people understand what our industry is than saying this guy for the cloud? Although I can't use that term only right. one person on earth can or something, right. you know? So I'm like, Hey, I get it. That's their first mover's advantage. Right. Totally fair. They right. got something special. Right. We'll find another creative way to explain it. But we need to find a way to tell people don't go, I'm not going to say waste your career doing right. that, but this industry already sees value in you. Right. And, and, and the beauty is it pencils better for companies to hire veterans because they're not commoditizing themselves in a bake off. Mm-hmm. Um, they join the military to make a difference, not to make money. And when they come out, they want to make a difference. Again, they want to be in a position of significance and value. They don't want to go from putting themselves in harm way on the battlefield every day or driving submarines or planes or to, to being insignificant or mediocre the level of mediocrity is what it probably keeps a lot of them in active duty it's not the safety because a lot of them have very dangerous jobs but they don't they want to be significant which is why they stay so how do we help them find significance out Mm -hmm. and i think that we just need to um we need to work on that that's the blind spot and that's that's my focus is trying to marry our beloved industry that has been so amazing to me and has given me every opportunity in the world uh, to the community that I come from that I was born and raised in. Every man in my lineage, military, and every person, uh, you know, growing up that had a significant influence on me as a secondary influencer or mentor of some kind traditionally came from some testament of the military or they're a coach or a teacher. So these are the two things that are most important to me. I understand what my purpose is. I could codify it in one word, and I'm going to focus all of my energy and effort in this 
the service of that purpose, which is bringing those two communities together. Yeah. It serves the community and it serves, it lowers the suicide rate. It hopefully will eventually stop the cycle of suicide. Right. Why do you think they have such a, when they went into the service, they had never gone to nuke school, many of them, if not most of them, or touched nuclear energy. They hadn't, you know, when I joined um, infantry, I had fired a gun a few times with my my grandfather and my dad at the range, but it wasn't a regular thing that we did. We'd never been, I'd never been hunting. So I, if, you know, the idea for, you know, I figured they'd train me. Like, I'll go, they'll teach me did everything they, did I they? do. They did. I, you know, and that's something I spent at the range. I mean, uh, you know. But they trained you. They did. And so, but my point is, I didn't. But you're coachable. I, I didn't avoid going in because I didn't know how to shoot or because I, I didn't know how. Um, uranium, how to enrich uranium if I wanted to go into nuke or any of these other things. In other words, I went with an open mind saying, hey, these guys will teach me. I'll figure it out. That's their job is to teach me. I'm wondering if why vets might be resistant to coming and joining our business thinking, man, what value could I bring? Look, if you know how to, you know, we're, if you're a cultural fit, because our industry is about a culture that looks like this, if you are um, operationally minded, you already know how to move, uh, you, know, you follow orders, you're coachable, you understand chain of command, you understand how to operate. We're not, we're not like some militaries where if your direct leader is lost, well, then everybody just comes to a standstill. I mean, I think that's one of the greatest differences about our distributed leadership. Control. That's right. Distributed leadership. We understand what the overall mission is and what our parameters are. Do you know why? Because um, everything you did when you showed up in the military was left seat, right seat. You showed up and they're like, this is your job, right, Dave? Right. Now go learn the job from the person above you and start teaching the person below you your job just in case something happens. Right. So distributed leadership and continuous training from left seat, right seat, right? Right. And that's why. That's why. I mean, that's that was. it doesn't matter what branch. And to go back to your question is this. Most people don't join the military knowing everything that there's out there. Like they normally, Hey, my cousin, my uncle, my neighbor, my brother, my coach, my teacher, whoever said, Hey, look, this is what it did for me. And we, um, we saw value in that and we emulated those things. And we said, if that can happen to them, then I want those things too. And that's where I could get it. And that makes sense. And I think that some people, um, I think it's awesome to hear the stories. Another reason why we do our podcast is half it is, I mean, I tried to either have a military veteran or an industry veteran. In some cases I get to have both. You're both right. So I get to kind of uh, do that because I want to, uh, I want to um, help people discover stories that are not like mine that they can relate to combat infantry, aviation boats is made damage patrolman, MP, whatever it was. But my focus is really on 85% of the market. And that is 85% of the, of the veterans are the current on active duty. Cause that's, that's about the portion of enlisted, right? And those enlisted people, even those senior NCOs coming out on retirement, they're still willing to reinvent themselves and start at zero. And when you become a senior NCO that, doesn't want to start over at zero, or if you're coming off and you're a submarine commander or something like that, then you may not be as willing to start off at bottom as I did, but that 85% that, that isn't in charge of the rest. Those are the ones that are the doers. Like those are the ones that we target. And those are the ones that this industry needs. I mean, we, this industry does not lack genius or people with big fat brains. It lacks people with the courage to speak truth to power and the courage of leadership upstream and down. Mm -hmm. Right. And like right now I'm trying to work with a group called the talent war group 
And the talent work group was uh, EF Overwatch, which um, Mike Sorelli, a famous Navy SEAL, started it. And I've been working with their president because she is fully committed to the same purpose we are, but they do executive side, executive development, executive coaching, executive placement. Well, those are like the senior officers and the senior NCOs that want to not start at zero, right? Great. I'm so thankful that there's a company that really was going to focus on them and go help them get into the fortune 1000. I'm focused on one little tiny itty bitty sliver of the world. And that's called data centers up over and out. That's it. And with that, I'm focused on military, primarily junior military officers that are ready to start them, you know, reinvent themselves or NCOs like myself or like you that are like, all right, I know enough about chain of command and selflessness and teamwork and communication and just teach me what's important now because what matters most is what I want to learn, you know, and they are more likely Remember, we were talking earlier and you're like, yeah, if they can, I'm like, nothing in this world is about whether they can, whether they want to. And what I found is you got to get people that want to be in this space and you got to find people that fall in love with this space. The only way they're going to do that is they hear the stories of others. I don't have to have, I mean, I have to, People on that podcast are non-military, but their stories are also so infectious that it makes it sound fun. Like this is the greatest industry, name an industry that's more fun than what we get to do at all these conferences, all the, all the yeah. projects and the companies we engage with, name something that's more fun than this. I can't think of anything that's more exhilarating where somebody's life's not in my hands. So it's not, I'm not an operating room. I'm not an operator on a, in a combat zone, but outside of that, like I feel like we're we're building the whole world. It's intense. We have a lot going on, as we've talked about a lot today. Um, so there's pressure. So if you don't, if if you're not interested in something that that's that intense and has pressure, probably would not be the world for you. But if you like mission and purpose and yeah. culture, and to your point earlier, you're hungry. I don't mean greedy, hungry, but hungry, and you want to align. In a community. The other thing is a lot like the military, you know, we have a lot of love for each other, even though, you know, the army loves the Marines because they'll rush right out in front of us, let them hit the beach first, <laughs> and then we'll come in behind or coming overhead. But we have, in all seriousness, we have a lot of affection for people that put on a uniform and um, said, I'll serve. You so we're the rivalry. We it's, love them. That's, that's a brotherhood right. and sisterhood. And so um, there's a lot of affection and honor there. Um, and so this community, whether you're at an organization like mine today and two years down the road, you're at a, a frenemy or, you know, coopetition or however it works, if energy is your first love and you want to help make sure or resource, resource management or like I cannot, again, think of almost any profession that's not directly connect or have some either direct or indirect connection to us, but you cannot find in our industry a path and you're building out, uh, you know, some of the most important infrastructure I'm not saying it's recession proof, but I can't imagine um, an industry to be better in during a, a time like this than ours. Like for, for the for the distant horizon, all we see is learning to adapt with growth. And um, our industry's been growing at a double-digit kegger since I got into it more than 20 years ago. And I think the last few times I've seen it, it's still above 20 points. Yeah. Right. So, uh, the companion growth rate does not seem to be looking like it's going to slow down. The only thing that slows it down is humans being yeah. able to build enough widgets to have the labor to build enough buildings fast enough. Yeah. Am I wrong? No, I agree. When's the fifth industrial revolution hit? 
I came on this podcast I because you were supposed up, to tell me. I want you to tell me what do you think this is a thought experiment. Or another way to ask it, somebody asked me this the other day, kind of blew my mind. If a, um, if a, if the perfect storm hit a tsunami of all the dire warnings of AI and technology and whatever hit, and all of a sudden 60%, 70% of our workforce is impacted because some app or some robot or something has replaced it. You choose which of these two scenarios do you want to stretch your brain around? When's the fifth industrial revolution happen? Or what are the consequences or the likelihood of something like this with this tech just disrupting the workforce in such a way that we don't need, like people kind of talking about it in the same way that we talk about autonomous vehicles are going to put truckers out of a job. And yet, one of the hardest gigs to get right now is to go get your CDL. CDL, because all the schools are full, because there's so much demand. Um, A lot of money in logistics. Yeah. I think that the answer to your question would be this Um, as we are the consumers that drive the demand, we will be the ones that shape that next revolution. And I'll say how is there will be. there's not an awakening over the course of time. We just become more intelligent to those things that are around us. We will learn the things around us that are healthy and the things that are not. And then time, I think that you'll see, I mean, all the media ratings are falling because people aren't turning to it as much because it's now more of a propaganda than it is a source of, like, I remember growing up, where people would sit around the TV in the evenings and listen to that person. Like it was the burning bush, like it was the gospel, right. sort of speak. And, and in many cases to what do I know? It seemed like that was, that was all truth. That was all the things that were really happening. So say at the TV, right? right. And, and I think now people are realizing like, Whoa, a lot of these media places that I follow, I mean, I can't even get the, they can't even get the weather right. You right. know what I'm saying? So I think that you're going to find people just slowly, it's the uh, law of diffusion of innovation, right? There's uh, you know, so many people that are so ahead of the curve. Like you, how long have you, you started your podcast? Probably 50 years ago for all I know. You're so smart. My thing is there's people that get it. You get it. Okay. Then there's people like me that are the latest or laggards, the adopters type of thing where you're going to see people happen and there'll be a tipping point. There's, you know, Gladwell talks about it. There's a tipping point. And when we hit that tipping point, when more people are dependent on this form of information, for all things, not just for their work, but for their health or their business or their family, then you will see us start getting closer to finding ways to have a much more accretive relationship with technology. I love it. I don't want to have less of it. It's not even good for business if that happens right now. However, comma, I do, I don't want to see it harm society or the culture that we're trying to create. So I think, um, we'll just, we're dealing with, um, you're going to have that silver tsunami and, and we're going to see, you know, the baby boomers and all those folks that are going to drop the mic and ride off. And there's going to be, um, disparity between what their philosophy in life was and, and, and those and these other tiers that are following it. And I think that when you do that, you will break away from, you know, there's a, there's a generation that depends on print media still. Right. And they listen to, doesn't matter, CNN, Fox, mm-hmm. whatever they, they believe that stuff still. And they watch it because it's more of a habit now than anything, mm-hmm. but they probably know that half that stuff that's being said in there is not intellectually honest or truthful in every sense, but it's more biased. But the more that they erode from that, then the more that we're less 
likely um, to be susceptible to to racing towards things that are unhealthy for us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do think that for sure, um, whether it's a podcast or something similar, um, that's going to the rise of that good or ill the rise of that is um is going to continue to be uh meteoric and mainline media if there is still such a thing as that is going to continue to my to uh, go uh, into decline until you'd feel like they would um kind of shake it off and get it right maybe they never will one of the things i used to love do you remember siskel and ebert the movie critics back in the day. Yeah, of course. I grew up in them. I love them because it didn't matter if they liked or disliked the movie. I understood how they measured whether they liked it or disliked it. So, for example, if they hated Karate Kid and they would go through how they evaluated it, I could then measure myself against that and say, oh, I would like it because I like things like this. Or they might have thought Marky Mark and Shooter was a horrible movie, of which my kid just asked me the other day, what are the movies you've seen like 50 times when Shooter comes on? You gotta Jeremiah watch Johnson, it. <laughs> you've got mail. Like, I have this worry. She's like, I don't see a connection here between. But, um, but I, could, I could navigate off of them because they didn't change how they measured. You know, they told me their bias up front. They told me what they thought were great and why and how they measured against it. And then I was able to kind of evaluate that. And they consistently evaluated their movies in the same way. And, and by doing that, it allowed me to react to them and say, look, if these are, if these are the elements and they measure it the same way, um, it then allows me to navigate correctly around them. Not whether they like it or dislike it, but just explain to me. No hidden bias, no hidden agenda. This is what they were in for and why they were. And, um, you know, it's probably romanticized, but I felt like we did that better a generation or two ago when there was strong peer review. There was all these, there was a real consequence of um, taking a, a clickbaity sort of position. I'm sure it happened, but it wasn't the way that it's become in the last 10 or 15 years for sure. But whether that's true or not, it felt like that. And now I find myself, there's very little news that I go get other than maybe just some local updates on what's going on in my regional area for traffic or whatever. I go to other places and I will usually listen to respectful but competing views and work towards something. Is it a philosophical belief or is it a factual truth? That is Venus. That is the North Star. Whether you believe it to be true, it's not my truth or your truth. It's a uh, factual truth. Um, As opposed to this tastes spicy to me or doesn't taste spicy to me. That's your truth versus my truth. It's more of a feeling. So I do believe that also as early adapters of tech as we're talking about it in terms of social media and this, we're not in the information age. As many documentaries have said, we're in the attention age. And as we see what happens when our attention is stolen, I think in a easy, unnatural way, it becomes poison for us. It erodes our productivity. It erodes everything about us. It erodes our relationships with each other. It erodes uh, family dynamic. It erodes 
uh, cultural connection, it erodes. The only thing that I wish happened better in terms of the podcast or the media, if I'm not careful, I go create a narrative for myself. I will only choose the people that tickle my ears over here to think my way. Now that's not my normal thing. I generally get other people that I respect, but I don't necessarily agree with everything they say. One of the, I'm a person of faith. One of my people that I love to listen to um, debate anyways, a guy named Sam Harris, who is a atheist and a neuroscientist. And he and I agree on some things, other things we do not agree, not just faith, but politics and other things. It's all right. But I like how he thinks. I love to listen to him and he is unafraid to go debate the Ben Shapiro's, an Orthodox Jew, the Jordan Peterson, who's working his way through evangelical Christian, non, you know, other neuroscientists with respect and kind of work through it. And so I try to bring in smart cognitive people and allow me to chew on the ideas and think, and I'm trying to get my kids to critically think like that. I think they're doing some of that. Okay. And others it's, uh, you know, they're of a generation where that's difficult to do to, to deliberately listen to people who are causing you to think and contend with your idea. I hope we get better at it, but I love being part of the infrastructure that gets to build out the opportunity for that. I love, uh, I love all of it. I, I appreciate the opportunity to yeah. join your podcast and, and hear your philosophy on many things. And <laughs> thanks for challenging me where you think I need to be challenged. I, I look forward to more of these discussions, whether we have a mic in front of us or not, but I think that that's the stuff that needs to take place more. That's how we teach and lead and learn. And, um, I think this industry is just, it's just about ready to get exciting again. I think, you know, I mean, the, the pendulum swings both ways. Sometimes I've been here for a few of them. Mm-hmm. I see it. I see it swinging and in, into the fun side. When the fun side means for me, the more kinetic side where we're being more disruptive and we're making wider strides and bigger changes to things that we're doing. That's the part that I really enjoy the most. Kirk, we've talked for a long time. Thanks for coming on the show. You could edit out all that though. <laughs> <laughs> Probably be like, that's stupid. That's stupid. Cut it I off. love it all. I, <laughs> I would, uh, but we gotta we gotta get going here in a second. Otherwise, it's, I we keep going. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and your podcast and your organization, where can they do that? At? You got it. So, um, Kirk O'Fell, O F F E L on LinkedIn. If people want to reach out to me, I'm actually pretty active on it. So. I'll, I may not post a million things all the time, but I'm definitely checking the messages I get all the time. I just may be a day or two late. Um, we have we have a couple brands, right? So we have our primary line of business, which is the owner's representation and professional services. We're only focused on data centers. So we either offer construction management, project management for um, data center builders, or, or we offer staff that we place as a recruiting arm. We have a whole recruiting team dedicated to hiring veterans and getting them transitioned to the data center space. Um, I know that a lot, I, I doubt you have a single data center that doesn't have military people crawling through the bellies. I cannot think of a one. single one. Yeah. Right. Um, we also have a, um, a conference that happens once a year. So we're hosting it again at the eighth annual DCAC will be, um, in September at downtown Austin at Austin city limits. We ran out the place for a few days. There's going to be a few surprises. There'll be a third day, which will be a hiring conference for veterans. Some companies are going to be sticking around for that. And then, um, I'm really excited. We have a, a pretty awesome keynote speaker that's going to be coming. His name's Dakota Meyer. He um, is a recipient of the Medal of Honor, former United States Marine. Um, has an incredible story. You could catch him on Jacko. He's been on Rogan a few times and stuff. But he he's going to come and do a fireside chat with me to talk about. He's got a really amazing philosophy on 
on the application of technology and how it could help people's health. He's he's fully pot committed and dedicated to helping save people's lives through creating better habits of health. And I think that's fascinating. Again, technology is the solution for helping people have healthier lives, not just crushing it, right? right. Um, so they can find us at dcaclive.com, uh, the website Overwatch, LinkedIn. And the last one is we have a podcast called DCAC Revolution, just got rebranded to Data Center Revolution. And you can find our podcasts on Spotify and iTunes and Apple and Google and every platform, I think. YouTube. Yeah, for sure. YouTube. Yeah. So, um, so either way, you know, tune in and, uh, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I've been chewing through those. And, and again, I probably shouldn't have started listening to so many of them recently. Cause I was like, what am I doing coming on this podcast? When you have all these, you're helping make the world better. That's what you're doing. And we got to have a mulligan, right? So, <laughs> Hey, I appreciate everything, Dave. And thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. My great pleasure. Hey, if you've enjoyed the conversation, like, and if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Have a good day.